Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Connie McReynolds. Dr. Connie is a licensed psychologist, certified rehabilitation counselor, and certified vocational evaluator with more than 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation, counseling, and psychology. She's the founder of Neurofeedback Clinics in Southern California, working with children and adults to reduce or eliminate conditions of ADHD anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma. She's a seasoned and very inspiring speaker and the author of the award-winning and Amazon number one best-selling book in eight categories, Solving the ADHD Riddle. Dr. Connie's wholehearted mission is to bring hope and resolution to those who are struggling with the symptoms of ADHD, their parents, and teachers. Besides podcast guesting, she also hosts her own show, Roadmap to the Brain, which has featured parents and professionals who share their experiences of healing and improving their quality of life. Today, Dr. Connie and I are talking about what she refers to as the real cause of ADHD and about some lasting solutions to help children overcome their struggles with learning. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Connie McReynolds. Hi, Connie. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's my pleasure. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, reading your bio and uh, your book together, it's just such a, there's so much commitment there. There's so much experience. So I'm, I'm excited to dive in. I'm going to start with my favorite question for you. Mm-hmm. What, what is ADHD? No, that's such a great question. <laughs> we could probably go for a long time on that question alone. <laughs> Because I think as many people have ADHD as there's an interpretation of it. So um, ADHD, just to spell it out for everyone, just in case someone doesn't know what that stands for, is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, which goes by ADHD. Uh, there's also Attention Deficit Disorder, ADD, There's and there's a whole host of other things. But really what I have come to understand is it's, different than what the narrative has been. And that's really what my book is about. It's really kind of understanding what the underlying situation is that's going on with children and adults. So the traditional kind of interpretation of it or belief of it is that uh, this is a child who's just inattentive. They're not paying attention, uh, drifting off. They don't listen. They don't follow through. And you know, corrections will make it better. So corrections could be medication, corrections could be uh, behavioral interventions, corrections could be punishments, taking away everything this child loves, you know, to try and get this child to, quote, behave. And so that is really the essence, is that when we talk about ADHD, generally the implied uh, conversation is that there's something going on that this child is not, quote, doing what this child or this adult is not doing, what they're really supposed to be doing. So they're not following through. They're not attending. They're not turning in their homework. And just the list goes on and on and on. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I I totally hear you on, uh, you know, there's so many different explanations. Every single one of my podcast guests, I mean, some may overlap, right, has had a slightly different um explanation or definition and none of them in my view have been what i would call invalid or mm-hmm. not justified you know so mm-hmm. i think that's great so i'm going to start off with um you know just asking you a little bit of background on your neurofeedback right lots of parents uh, hear about neurofeedback we have tried it ourselves well not tried we've done it ourselves with our son uh two times in his throughout his you know childhood so I'm familiar with it. Uh, maybe for those who are not familiar with it, it might be good to just have a quick overview and then also just let us know uh, perhaps what launched you into uh, that field, right? Sure. sure. So the short of neurofeedback is most people have heard the term biofeedback. 
And so biofeedback really is getting biological information. So typically in the beginning, they might place a little sensor clipped onto a finger to measure pulse, maybe respiration. And by getting this biological information, biofeedback, the person could then have more awareness of maybe if I breathe differently or if I relax my muscles or if I do you know, certain types of intervention, so to speak, that maybe I feel more relaxed and maybe my heart rate will come down and maybe my respiration will slow down. So that's kind of biofeedback. When it comes to neurofeedback, it's still similar to that. It's EEG biofeedback, which is electroencephalogram, which is a scary long name. <laughs> which we call it EEG, but the concept is similar in that we are reading. In other words, we're not doing anything to a person. We're simply reading brainwaves. And so we can do that through these little sensors that we place on the scalp. That information is fed into the computer in a nearly instantaneous manner. And depending on what you're doing with the neurofeedback programs, in our case, we're using scientifically designed uh, low-impact video games that help target those areas that we identified in the assessment that need to be strengthened. And really through the repetition of the training, you can think I kind of call it a gym for the brain. It's kind of boosting the processes of the brain and it's doing it in an organized, consistent manner, which is how our brain best learns and remembers. It's through repetition. And so if we can create a, a repeatable process for the brain to strengthen those areas that we found need to be strengthened, then the brain does its job, which is learn. And so the brain's job is to learn. And so through that repetition, what we're doing is really strengthening some neuronal pathways that maybe need to be strengthened. Some folks, we may actually be creating some of that. And so there's then lies the uniqueness to each person in what we do. But the bottom line is, the brain is neuroplastic, meaning the brain changes. It's malleable. We've learning, we're learning every single day of our lives. We're learning new things and we have bad habits and maybe we want to change a bad habit that got hardwired in. So we have to create something new to replace that. And so that's the essence of it is really training the brain. Yeah, well said. It's funny when you said gym of the brain, I was just about to say that that was going to be my next comment, right? Mm -hmm. Um because you explained it so well that yes, I, I do see the similarity there. My question is, and you and I talked about when we had our initial talk about you had said that you believe that the brain can be rewired, right? This neuro, this plasticity, you know, I believe in that too. And science has proven that, right? Now, the question is, why do we keep hearing statements that actually imply that that's not possible because when we hear an expert say well you know your child has adhd you got to take medication for life well that's that's the that's the contrary to the brain can change can be rewired even into older age right mm -hmm. why do you think that is and what is that about well in my opinion and that's what you're going to get here <laughs> that's what i want that's what i want <laughs> in my opinion uh, that's kind of the the old paradigm. I'll just put it that way. I think it's an old paradigm. I think it's a paradigm that my work is and other people are doing similar things out there. Maybe not exactly the same, but we kind of are looking for these alternative narratives. And I think that's really what's surfacing in today's world is the tried and true things, the things that we thought maybe were working. Well, we're finding out not so much of it is working as well as we thought that it was. And this is particularly the case for children who are diagnosed with ADHD or the host of diagnostic conditions that they come in the door with into my clinics. It can, you know, the litany goes on and on and on for what they're diagnosed with. But I think we have to look at what is the outcome, what are the results of the interventions? And so if we're looking at medication, maybe that works for some folks. Maybe that's a good pathway for a few folks or some folks or many folks. What about the ones for which it isn't, which are the people who show up at my front door? So these are the parents or the adults or whomever, and there's they fall into two camps. They fall into the camp, we've tried everything. We don't know what to do. Our son or daughter still is struggling. Nothing has worked. We're not getting lasting results. Or the other camp is we don't have any intention of going down. 
that pathway <laughs> of medication because we've heard too much, we've read too much, and it's not for us. And so regardless of how they get to my front door, we have to have a solution. And what really evolved over time, we can talk about that, is really how I got there. And it is something that was just uncovered, discovered, uh, you know, kind of revealed as time went on. Yeah, and that's great. And we'll def I definitely want to go there. And I just want to say, too, that, you know, maybe for for the listeners here, for the parents, if you're going to see an expert or if you have, you're going to see your expert again, just to ask that simple question, like, do you believe that the brain can be rewired? Do you believe that neuroplasticity is real? And what what do you have to say to that? Because I feel like just engaging in a conversation and, you know, it's not a confronting question. It's just asking about science in a way, right? Neuroscience um, might actually uh, make a parent realize, oh, I'm with the wrong expert. They're not, they're just doing, they're just offering medication. They're not offering me they're not talking about neurofeedback or they kind of laugh it off or they say, well, you can try, but it's not really, you know, mm -hmm. have you come across that where parents said like, yeah, it, I don't know if this is going to work because I was told it's not real or, you know, I don't know, something mm -hmm. like that. Well, it's kind of interesting, a little more in the beginning of 15 years ago, <clears throat> but I've been out here doing it long enough that by the time they find me, it's because someone has said, you need to go see her. You, you know, th that's really kind of what's happening out here. And Part of that is because what we do gives lasting results. <laughs> that's that's the difference here is that and the research is there. It's in my book. Anything that I've cited that's in the back, you can go find the article about it. So yeah, the research is there that children who have been on these medications for years sometimes, when they come off of that, their symptoms typically have not improved or are any different than children with the same symptoms who weren't on the medication. So in other words, these medications may dial down the behaviors, which is in my book, a symptom, but it doesn't really get to the underlying causal factor and solve that. So when you, yeah, when you go down into it, it's something different. <clears throat> Great. And this, this is a good point for me to say, first of all, I think, you know, your book's subtitle subheading is, is really bold, right? You say the real cause, uh, this is for ADHD or solving the ADHD riddle. So I wrote down a very important question. It's very important to me, as you know, from my podcast, I'm, I'm really, uh, you could say I'm, I'm going down an alternate alternative path, right? And when we say the real cause, I'm always interested when people say, what's the cause? So I have a question. So you mentioned the auditory and visual problems as as the real cause, right? Or as, uh, can you expand on that? So I'm not actually, you know, giving meaning to what maybe not the real meaning is uh, throughout the book, but like, talk to me about auditory and visual problems and how you believe they're the cause to then uh, have children uh, uh, have these, these symptoms or right, these behavioral uh, problems? Well, this came about over a course of time because when I started this, parents were showing up. I really started a pilot project about 15 years ago uh, and just kind of, we found about, out about neurofeedback, pardon me. <clears throat> and we just really wanted to see, you know, what this was. And we were using this assessment that looks at 37 areas of auditory and visual processing. And the assessment was initially created, not by me, but I used it for a long time, but it's designed to kind of identify, does a child have ADHD? And then what I started realizing is that it kind of doesn't matter what we call this. What really matters is what's working and what isn't working in this child's brain. And so when we talk about auditory processing, I'm not talking about hearing, but I will say to parents, you may want to make sure you've checked your child's hearing because that could be a valid concern. The same with the visual processing. This isn't about the eyes being able to see, although, <laughs> again, have that test done, have the child's eyes checked just to make sure you're not dealing with something like that. And if you can rule that out and we still are seeing all these difficulties, then it's something that's going on with how this child is able to interact with their world. So for example, I like to start with visual because most people are not anchored into visual processing very well. We haven't really talked about it a whole lot, So, but there are clear signs of it. 
So clear signs of visual processing problems could be the child who has really messy handwriting. And so if this child can't form their letters correctly, maybe they copy words and they leave letters out or they leave words out in sentences. Or maybe when the teacher's at the whiteboard and they're trying to get things from the whiteboard down to their paper, it just isn't happening. They might have the messiest room on the planet. They can't seem to get it cleaned up and organized. You know, parents say, put your toys away, and it just never quite happens. So these are pieces of the puzzle that people perhaps have not really delved into and thought about from the fact that maybe this is a sign of something. Maybe this is something that we can decode. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about auditory processing, this is where we really kind of hone in more in our society. This child doesn't listen. It just goes in one ear and out the other. Doesn't matter how many times I tell him to do this, nothing ever gets done. Well, that's a pretty common conversation <laughs> that a lot of parents have. But there's another one that they're not really tuned into, which is auditory speed. And this is where it gets very interesting. Once I started seeing this and realizing what was really going on. So if a child has slow processing speed, they are considered a, quote, slow learner. The interpretation of, quote, slow learner typically falls along the cognitive or intellectual line that this child is just limited in this area. And I'm here to say that isn't necessarily the truth at all and isn't at all what I have uncovered over 15 years. So we have a whole different conversation we can now have when we stop just trying to say it's this or it's that or we stick with this traditional viewpoint of what ADHD is. When we stop that conversation and really, when I started really looking at the data, and I have looked at thousands of these assessments over 15 years, it became painfully clear to me that we had just been going down the wrong track in this world in dealing with children who are struggling with this. And if we kept going down that, it's that old saying, keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Well, we know where that goes. It doesn't go anywhere. And Insanity. so maybe it's yeah. time to have a different conversation. And that's what this is. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so I have a question. I mean, you have, uh, uh, you know, experience uh, in dealing with not just ADHD, but anxiety, anger, panic disorders, conduct disorder, depression, chronic pain, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And tra trauma is in there as well. And I'm a big believer. Uh, my my recent sort of path has been all about um, going down the trauma path, you know, to, to discover that a lot of those, what we may consider the causes, and for me, including auditory visual, like, do you believe that there's actually an underlying cause for those to be symptoms of something? Or is it just like, for lack of a better term, or does God just make certain broken brains? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, without being, without yeah. getting religious, but like, exactly. literally, is it, is it just like you're born that way? Or is it possible that there's other causes such as trauma, childhood trauma that could could change the way the auditory and the visual right learning that, that impacts that, right? Yes, yes, and yes, <laughs> is my answer to that, because it can be all of that. And I've seen it come in so many different configurations. And we work with a lot of children who've come through foster care or who've had a really tough conditions. I just had a case come in this week of a, a you know, it's seven-year-old now uh, has been adopted, but for the first three years, uh, it was in a very, very bad situation. And so there's no way on that child to figure out, was this, you know, a pre-birth exposure to drugs? Was it a lack of any kind of supportive environment for the first three years? You know, he's made tremendous progress in the last four years. We still have things going on. And so, yes, trauma has a huge impact. And I treat a lot of trauma. And I really started with trauma with veterans. My, my education goes back to UW-Madison, where I worked at the VA, uh, the Chemical Dependency Treatment Center with the veterans. And um, I ran an anger management program there. So you know, I, when I came out here to do this work and we kind of started moving in that direction, I, I took two approaches, one with ADHD and one with trauma. 
because I felt like I really wanted to tackle both of those. And we have had great results with both and I've published on both. So I've actually published in scientific journals about my work on ADHD and my work with veterans and really dialing down that trauma response brain. And kind of regardless of what brings a person into the clinics, eight out of nine people, when we run this assessment, we're finding that there are auditory and visual processing problems underneath whatever the label or the reason is for them to show up. And when we get that, we actually tackle all of it together. So if we've got anxiety, we have trauma, we have depression, we have whatever that is, and we have auditory and visual processing challenges, we just dovetail it together in the training plan and do it all at once. Yeah. So it's that idea of the psychosomatic, right? It's not one or the other. Uh, Just like you, I don't say I know I have the answer for every single human that's been diagnosed with ADHD, (laughs) what the cause is, I don't, right? Right. Right. but I want to compare it to the chemical imbalance, which is very similar to me because it's it's like saying, oh, there's an imbalance in your brain at this moment in life. And the question, the real question, I think, is what causes the imbalance? Not so much a broken brain exactly. or God made a mistake, but could it be that the imbalance was caused by some environmental imbalance, some psycho somatic imbalance? Right. And you've you've certainly been around for years, been around people like that. Um, that are dealing with these, we call them disorders, right? (laughs) Now, how do you, there's a new movement going on right now with all the uh, psychedelics being tested for uh, depression and certain things, right? And there's some are legal, some are not. Have you seen that already affect uh, your work or uh, come into your work or being mentioned or tested or what's, because that would affect neurofeedback for sure, right? Well, yes. <laughs> Anytime we're just ingesting anything that's altering the brain in a chemical manner, you're affecting your brain. And so, um, you know, I haven't had too many people come in, or at least they're not saying they've done it when they come to my clinics. But I tend to be a little more of a believer that I don't know that we how much of that we actually need. I'm not quite sure even why that's surfacing back again. It kind of feels like a throwback to the 60s and the 70s almost. And I'm I'm really kind of curious how this has come about all of a sudden. And maybe it's not just all of a sudden, but it really seems like it's bubbling up. And it's and I don't know because <clears throat> to me, sometimes these things are compensatory strategies. It's like this is too much and I can't handle this and I want something in my brain to kind of take care of things. And I get that. I mean, I worked in an addiction center, so I have a little bit of a different background perhaps regarding substances like this. And, you know, if people want to do it, it's a free world. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of where I am. If you want to go that route, you know, go that route. If you come to my clinic, I'm going to say, don't do it while you're with us because you're going to be affecting your brain and the only one you have. (laughs) And I think, uh, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, in essence, it could be a crutch or like a bandaid to help you rewire something temporarily and you feel better, you focus more, you have all that, but the integration is what I'm hearing. The, the neurofeedback, right? The work that you do with your clients, children and adults is really about integrating this new wiring, this new firing of the brain, right? And so, so I think that's a very important, we've done it twice with our son and, uh, you know, we've done so much that it's hard, it's overlaps, right? So it's hard to say, oh, that really worked. Oh, this, but, but it seems like everything we've done has worked because our 14 year old son that was diagnosed at seven is now in high school and he's more focused, more committed, more proactive than I've ever been in my life, in my school life without even like watching over his shoulder. He's so self-generated it just last night i was laying in bed and i was like you know thank god like thank you for uh have you know just for where he's at right but we've done quite a bit of neurofeedback and i have to say that that he was always calmer afterwards and he was always i don't know if the right word is uh just mature and reasonable for a few days you know (laughs) i don't know Mm -hmm. What, what are the what are some of the for our listeners what are some of the things that that might be instant results versus long-term results and how long typically does someone do neurofeedback with 
few, let's just say children for now. Um, if you could share a little bit about that. Sure. So I, I kind of want to wax just for a second on this instant gratification piece, because I think that we have been so hardwired <laughs> into believing if we just ingest something, our life is going to be better. And maybe, but I, you know, and I am old enough that I remember the cover of a magazine decades ago that came into the household. I was a, a child and there it was, was a plate with pills on it. And the heading on that magazine was, this is all you're going to need in the future. It's like, what kind of programming had started way back then to where we think what we need is a pill to be able to take care of us. Now, I am not against medication. So there are people, if you've got heart problems, you've got blood pressure problems, you have kidney, you have things going on. There are certain medications that, yeah, you have diabetes, you need to take care of this. So that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is kind of these other situations like ADHD and other types of things where people are uncomfortable. They can't quite get a grip on what's going on. They don't feel like they're as sharp as they want to be and they're striving for something. Part of that, and I talk some about this in the book, is a lack of dopamine in the brain. And we can't rule out what some of these meds or um, <laughs> pharmaceuticals or whatever you want to call them are actually attempting to do, which is to alter the brain chemicals. But what if you could actually do that yourself through an organized systematic training program? I think it's very hard for people to do it on their own, which is why they're striving for something. They're looking for something that's going to help them be better. And I, yes, keep looking for what you need and try different things, but let's be judicious about what we're doing. Let's, let's, kind of be discerning in other words and not just kind of jump on the latest bandwagon i'm i'm not a real big bandwagon person um yeah, yeah. no that's well said because i believe that you know when we alter the chemistry of our brains right first of all we're completely we're playing russian roulette because mm -hmm. we don't have the long term research there are some researches that have been done uh, that were disregarded by the mainstream. 30-year research, for example, uh, Nadine Lambert at, at uh, Berkeley did a 30-year study with Ritalin, kids mm -hmm. into adulthood, and clearly showed that it was the opposite of what was promised, that these, these kids would stay out of trouble. She actually found that more of those kids self-medicated and got into trouble and smoked and became alcoholics than the, their peers who were medicated, right? I mean, the uh, were not medicated. So- right. We do have some studies, but we we kind of play around with this brain chemistry and we're just not sure what it's going to do. But I love what you said that we as humans, I think we have a an amazing machine, an amazing, you know, body that if left, I hate to say left its own devices, of course, we have to operate it and be conscious, but but it heals. It heals not just, you know, skin like you know, cuts or whatever. It heals, and I, I believe that in your case, neurofeedback is 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 using almost a mirror, right? A feedback to rewire the brain, so you're in essence healing or adjusting your brain wiring, so you can function in this crazy world, right? Well, precisely. And what's better than empowering a person to be able to use the facilities and faculties of their own brain and their own beingness toward moving toward wellness and wholeness, yeah. than you know just medications i get it sometimes we need them you know and i'm not against antidepressants i'm not against any of that i'm a licensed psychologist so i know that there are times when some people may need that but i think we're in an overprescribed world yeah and so i think part of what we are seeing i think so much shifting going on on the planet with our approach to things and that's why i think this is such an important topic for your listeners and for teachers and for parents and anyone concerned about a child or, you know, a loved one, there's something that could be different. We have it. We need desperately need a different narrative about this. And that's really why I wrote the book, which is let's get this different narrative out there. Teachers need to understand this from a different point of view. This isn't just a behavioral problem. This is something that this child's struggling with. And we don't want to diminish that, but we need to have useful and reliable and 
demonstrable outcomes and results that with some of these traditional interventions, the wrong diagnosis is not going to lead us to the right intervention. And that's what I think happens in a lot of cases that we just plaster these labels on and then chase after whatever's designed to tackle that label. And we're not really dealing with what's going on here. We're just trying to drive down these behaviors. Yeah. And the behaviors uh, are language. We have to understand that. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, if we think about this, you said earlier that, uh, you know, when when kids have um, visual processing or auditory problems at school, for example, right? We call mm -hmm. them slow learners. And I always thought, well, who says we need to learn fast? Where does this rule come from? Well, we've created it. We created a school system that you have to get through this year and do this and this and this and this grade and this next Ivy League school and graduate by the time you're 24. And, you know, there's like, like a speed that we're, that we're just feeding and inciting in this system. And so what if somebody learns uh, reading late? For example, I'll give you a great example. I'm really proud of my kids, they were at a self-directed learning school uh, in the early years. And everybody, all our friends were concerned. They're like, well, your kids don't, they're not really reading yet. And we were told by the school, like, don't worry, it'll come. And so we were a little nervous, right? But one day I went to the school. I remember I'd sort of forgotten about the issue. I went to school and they were playing Pokemon cards, right? Because they could do whatever they wanted. Literally, the kids could choose what they wanted to do all day long. There was never a rule they, could, they were offered uh, activities, but they didn't have to do it, right? So they were playing Pokemon cards. And I see my son reading the cards and I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm like, did you just go back, read that again? And he read what was on the card and it's complicated. Those uh, I get lost in those cards. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, he's reading. So he needed to learn how to read because he wanted to play the game that he loved and he he just did it. And from then on, he still doesn't like books. But he can read fluently. Now, it took him about a year longer or a year and a half longer than the average kid, right? Mm -hmm. Than the norm. Mm -hmm. But so what? Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's where we get all caught up in like, well, is a year behind. And well, if he's a year behind, then what? You know? <laughs> and what do you say to parents when you uh, encounter this you know, the, 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 the busy, uh, professional couple who's stressed, who brings you their child and who's like, please, we need to, we need to keep like that frantic energy of, of, we need to, let's go, let's go, let's go. What, how do you handle that? Mm -hmm. Well, and you see the stress in the family and you see the stress in the child. And so sometimes it's a conversation about, do they really need an activity every single night? And they're working, at six o'clock in the morning and going until 10 o'clock at night. And then there's the weekend activities and, you know, not that I'm a big fan of the pandemic in any stretch of the imagination. However, it did cause a pause in some of that frenetic pushing kind of behavior. And so I see a lot less of that now uh, coming into my clinics, interestingly enough. Because I think there was a long enough pause that people's brains were able to maybe retool themselves and get out of some of that frenetic, uh, got to do everything. This child's going to be damaged if we don't have this child and every single thing that's offered every single day, 12 months out of the year. There are probably still people out there that are doing that. But I really try and encourage people to slow down because, this, you know, each child is different. And really what we're looking at when we do this assessment, and like I said, I've seen thousands of them, they're all unique. And so each person on this planet has their own unique pathway. Now, if there's something we can find that we can strengthen through kind of what I call the gym for the brain, then why would we not do that and give someone, you know, the advantage that maybe they don't have? So I think it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag and it's kind of an individual case by case situation because I've kind of seen a lot of it. I've seen everything on the spectrum, you know, to where, you know, they were doing way too much and maybe some families aren't really kind of geared in and uh, doing enough to find those supports. So I don't think there's an easy answer necessarily. That's a one size fits all, but I do think we have to evaluate and I really kind of look at the family unit when they come in because parents have to come in with the child 
And so I meet with the child, they go off to do the assessment, and then I'm meeting with the parents for a good half an hour just to try and figure out, you know, how's this family wired, what's working, what isn't working, and then develop a strategy for this. Mm. Would be interesting to have like two, uh, you know, equipment. One measures the parent, one the child, and then you overlap. You're like, oh, I see where this is coming from. You know, well, it's it's kind of interesting because not infrequently, I'll just put it this way: I'm going over the results of the assessment for the child, and the parents going, "I think you're talking about me." <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That was the same with our with our son, and I was like, oh, I was never officially diagnosed back in the '70s, but. Right. Uh, mm-hmm probably would be today if I was open to being diagnosed and uh, if I saw value in that for me. Right. Um, but uh, you know, I, I did it for this project. I, I had myself diagnosed and they were like, sure. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have some ADHD. Right. And I was like, okay, good to know what you think, but Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm healing it in a different way, but perhaps uh, this might be a good moment to talk about, um, uh, you've already uh, touched upon it, but in your book is is obviously about lasting solutions, right? So when our listener hears, go do neurofeedback, that's one action, right? You go, mm-hmm. you, uh, I'm assuming, uh, obviously we'll have in the show notes, we'll have a link to to your work and all that. And they can, I mean, listeners can reach out or contact your your center centers. Mm-hmm. Um, but what other solutions uh, are you a huge fan of? Like mm-hmm. what have you seen really uh, work powerfully? Mm-hmm. Well, what I've uncovered, I guess, you discovered or whatever you want to call it, is that if you have some sense of what's really going on with this child, we'll focus on children. It applies to adults too. But for right now, let's focus on the children. So in the book, there are actually checklists. After the auditory uh, processing chapter, there's a checklist after the visual processing chapter. And then some children have a combination of both of these. And so If you can hone in on really kind of what the symptoms are, what the behaviors are, then it can give you a clue as to, okay, how do I really need to interact with this child? Because as I mentioned, if it's a visual thing and this child's handwriting is really messy, that's going to be something totally different. So you can't just willfully do that. You can try and force this child to write well, but processing is processing. And so that's that's a different thing. The same with auditory. But if you know that the child has certain strengths in certain areas and weaknesses in certain areas, then for example, let's just go with auditory. If you can see that there are multiple markings or um, identify, identified uh, weaknesses within auditory, and the visual seems to be working pretty well, then switch to visual instruction and inform the teacher of this. So if this child is not able to handle like three or four steps given verbally, then have the teacher or the parent write this down, do visual boards. So point the child to the visual board and see if that makes a difference. Because it could very easily be that this child is more visually oriented because they have a weakness in the auditory processing piece. If they're the opposite of that, where it doesn't matter how often they're shown something or they can't get things organized, then auditory instruction may be stronger for that child. And I'm just going to wax momentarily on this because we talk about learning styles. And I would love to delve into this a little bit in research. um, Now that I know what I know (laughs) about auditory and visual processing problems, because we've had this long standing thing. Oh, well, he's a visual learner. Oh, she's an auditory learner. Well, that could be because perhaps the other side is the weak side that actually has processing problems. And so if we would figure that out and then navigate that by strengthening that, then maybe they can use both of these equally well. Yeah. And that brings up a good point that that I've made before. And you added a nuance to this, which is in our current education system, like let's just say the average public school, you know, decent public school in that system, um, what I think is missing is the evaluation of what you just described so that we could have maybe what I call separate departments in a school, right? If you're currently better at, say, aud- what is it? I always can I always have to look at the words auditory, right? If you're better at that, then the mm-hmm. classroom and the teacher would be more focused on that while you're working with uh, neurofeedback or mm-hmm. some modality to restore the balance. And then the other department would be visual processing or, you Absolutely. know or tactile. Some people are super tactile. Mm -hmm. They need to touch stuff and build stuff. That is to me, wouldn't you agree that that's now, that's a school system of the future where we're sort of uh, 
customizing versus mm -hmm. normalizing, right? Well, absolutely. And what an amazing difference this could make. So if you could actually just figure out what direction this child needs to go, instead of trying to shove this child into the square hole in the classroom that needs to fit into, you know, we've become so rigid in these school systems. Now, not all of them are that way. The ones you've mentioned that you use is a completely different system. But when we're talking kind of the traditional public school that's tied to government funding, the government assessments, and just the pressure that's on these teachers and these administrators to perform and produce, it's become more of a factory of sorts than a learning yeah. institution. Right, right. We've lost the focus of learning, and we're all on producing certain kinds of results and test scores so that we can justify what we're doing. Well, these children that I'm working with, at least, don't fit into any of that. And so that difficulty that's happening in the classroom, I hold a vision for a completely different world for education. My mother taught second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. I was in the classroom for 25 years in the university, so I understand the classroom. And when I ran this pilot project that I did in an elementary school, I saw light bulbs coming on in teachers that were amazing because when they actually got this data, some sat in with the parents when I was delivering the information and I could see it wash over these teachers' faces. They realized for the first time, this wasn't a behavioral problem in their classroom that they needed to manage. This is a child that was struggling to learn in the manner the information was being delivered and they couldn't do it. And when yeah. that yeah. information landed with that teacher, it was a completely different ballgame then. Yeah. And of course, you know, to in in the def, to the defense of, of the teachers, they're in a system where you can't just slow down and say, oh, we got to do this differently. It's like you're the employee, right? You have to deliver you you need most likely your paycheck and so that old machine just keeps keeps it's moving broken. forward it's it broken, broken. Yeah. so many places it's just broken yeah. so imagine if we had this assessment in every elementary school on the planet <laughs> and we could by second or third grade figure out what's going on with each child some children are doing fine you know, but there are others that just seem to be struggling, have, can't quite find their feet, can't get their footing. They're, you know, working hard, but it's just not coming together for them. What if they actually have an auditory or visual processing problem? And what about the child that has both of these? And I've worked with these children. So I've had children come in, and there's an example in the book where this child had zero ability to process information, both auditorily and visually. And this is a child that is just going to be perpetually lost in the academic program, they're going to get channeled into special programs. And those programs aren't going to meet the need because if this child can't take in auditory or visual information, it doesn't mean they are cognitively impaired. Right. Or as we would call stupid, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, really, that term gets thrown around so yes. much of like, you're stupid, you're mm -hmm. slow, you're broken, whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. And if that information is out there and people understand what's happening, then that falls away. So then right. a lot of the bullying and the labeling and the naming, name calling, right? And that's, oh, that's huge. It stops because we figure out what's really going on and get this tuned up. And so literally we've created, you know, brainwave pathways so that children can have this auditory and visual processing. And we do 10 hours of training and then we reassess. A child that comes in or adult that comes in that has very low or almost non-existent processing, honestly, they're going to be there a little bit. But in the long run, you've just given this child auditory and visual processing and you have changed this child's life trajectory. And thanks for saying that. I just brought me back to a question I asked earlier. I just wanted to ask you again, like what for a parent who's not familiar with it or they've never done neurofeedback, but they're interested, what, give me an average of, of hours or treatments that you think just from mm -hmm. what you've seen, right. From the, mm -hmm. between the longest and the shortest sort of an average time frame of, mm -hmm. uh, pro, of, of doing the work. Mm -hmm. The average is typically somewhere around 20 hours, 20, 30 hours of brain training. And the good news about that is once we get those brain waves 
you know, strengthened and reinforced, they don't need to come back for us. So that's really an amazing piece of this is that we're able to measure that and keep track of it and then adjust the training plan as they're going along every 10 hours. Some children don't have that far to go. They they may be struggling a lot, but maybe things are not that far off. And so they could get done in 10 hours. And we've had some children do that. We've had some adults do that to where they just get it tuned up. I've had adults that have made such a big difference in their life that they just don't want to stop coming because they keep feeling like they're continuing to get better and better and better. And I've had adults that we've treated with very severe psychiatric difficulties uh, who five, six, seven, eight years later are coming back and still saying, you know, my brain just keeps getting better and better and better. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I mean, that's not a lot of hours. If you think about it, if you do 20 hours for a child, right? And you, is it typically what, like a couple sessions a week or how would you space that out? I do 30 minutes because I found we experimented in the beginning with just, you know, it's 30 minutes is an hour for our program. If you get much past 30 minutes, you get into 45 minutes, people are tired and they just have kind of a longer recovery time from that because this is a workout for your brain. And so what we tend to do is two or three times a week, they need a day in between, ideally. Uh, and we do 30 minute sessions and we'll do 20 of those, which equates to 10 hours of brain training. And, you know, I can do this with people regardless of where they sit because we figured out how to deliver this. And so what's been nice is that we, with the advent of the pandemic, I mean, some of the good things happened is the systems got a lot better, Zoom got a lot better, and, you know, internet services got speedier. So there are ways to really help people kind of regardless of where they're sitting. So this is a remote uh, application as well? It is for us. I don't know. And it, for us, it's exactly the same thing as you get when you're in our clinics. Now, there are a lot of remote things out there that are quite different from that. Uh, I just want to stress for us, it's the same exact thing as if you were driving to my clinics. And I actually have local people who are doing it at home. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people have transportation problems. They can't get out of the house, uh, chronic pain situations. And so they just set the unit up uh, at home. We lease it to them and license it and such, and then uh, continue to do the work. And so I do the intakes uh, via Zoom for, for those folks. We've done up and down California and kind of across to other areas. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say as a licensed psychologist in California, I can diagnose here, but I'm not going to issue a diagnosis anywhere outside of California. I am a certified rehab counselor, which means that certification is good in all 50 states. Um, so there is you know, some qualification I've got there that I can help people. And right. you know, the, the, this is a non-invasive process. So that's the other piece of it is we're doing brain training. I don't claim that we're going to cure any particular a situation, but we have evidence of improvement of different types of processes. And so that's really what I focus on. And I've never been a big label person. I've uh, taught psychiatry rehab for decades in a university setting. And I would always say the diagnosis may get a person in the door, but it isn't going to tell you anything about the person. I yes. love that. I love that. Yeah. And for our listeners, obviously you can reach out, you know, there'll be a link, uh, links in the show notes. Um, <laughs> to perhaps get an assessment done, right? An evaluation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt um, to do that. We've done that. We've done the evaluation. We've done the, the neurofeedback twice in, in our son's uh, earlier childhood. And well, one was more recent, I would say three years ago. And the other mm -hmm. one was maybe six years ago, seven years ago, right after he was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And again, all of what we've done has made a difference. I've seen it happen, right? Like I said, some overlaps were there, but mm -hmm. so it's hard to identify exactly. Uh, but I'm I'm a big proponent of neurofeedback. It's come up a lot. I had a, a parent reach out recently that reached out two years ago that's done neurofeedback and other modalities and is now uh, weaning their child off of, of medication, which mm -hmm. I'm so happy. I was so happy to read that. And of course, I never gave advice or I, I'm not a medical professional or anything, but I think they've come to that realization that things like neurofeedback really made a, a difference. They saw results and they're like, you know what, we're going to try without medication. Mm -hmm. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I will say parents come to me for that very purpose. It's like, you know, we've gone down this road, we're using this, 
the, the symptoms come back, the med wears off, we have cataclysmic meltdowns in the middle of the afternoon when the meds wear off, we need something that's more permanent than this. And that's really what a lot of folks are looking at. And we've had people, I'm not a physician or a psychiatrist, so I don't make a recommendation pro or against the medications or when to come off of them, I will give them signs to look for uh, because sometimes as the brain gets better, you know, the symptoms change and so do the side effects uh, for some folks. So I always refer them back to their physician or their psychiatrist to work on that. And I said, go in and tell them what you're doing. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, Connie, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on. And certainly I highly recommend that parents or listeners in general check out um, your work and also your book, uh, Solving the ADHD Riddle. Uh, very successful on Amazon. The Real Cause and Lasting Solutions to Your Child's Struggle to Learn. I think there's a wealth of information in there. And I will say that, you know, a lot of parents don't have time to read every book from from finish to end. But from what I've read and from what I've heard from your work, it is definitely, definitely worth a listen or a read. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend, uh, we'll have a link as well for people to purchase the book. So um, just want to thank you for the work you're doing out there for making a difference for children and adults. And uh, I think you should run for president. (laughs) 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 Just my vote. (laughs) You know, change the education system then. I'm ready to do that. That is what this is really all about is it's time to overhaul this. It's time to get these services into teachers so that they know what they're actually dealing with in the classroom, which is going to ease up the stress level significantly uh, for people. So that's really the bigger scope and mission of this is to start looking at how can we get this embedded into school districts? Because I can tell you the amount of money saved will be in the billions of dollars if we tackle this the way we need to. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. And if you're someone listening that has a connection to the government, the education system or anything like that, you talk to Connie, yes, you reach out to Dr. Connie, you team up, you make it happen. Cause it's going to need a team, right? This mm-hmm. is a it will. group effort. So, it will. Mm-hmm. well, thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure to have you on and maybe we'll do a follow-up sometime. I'd be happy to. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.